scripture this morning is from Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Well, here we are again, another week to worship, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. When people ask you about your church, what do you tell them? Well, each week we try to remind you of at least three foundational fundamentals that we think are so important. And it's really easy to remember them. A church on mission, a church with flaws, and a church obsessed with truth. So if we think about that, you know, too often I think as, as churchgoers, we just get focused on Sunday events. But we don't want to be a church about that where we're only focused on Sundays. We want to be focused on the business of the kingdom every single day of the week because that's what we're called to do with our great commission, to go and make disciples. Second, if you look around, we don't want anyone who comes to Four Mile to think they're being judged because we don't judge people here, especially when we know that it's okay to not be okay. We are all flawed at so many levels. And of course, we don't celebrate that here. We actually don't wanna stay in that not okay place, which is why we have that third fundamental. We love you enough to tell you the truth and so being obsessed with the truth and the personal words and works of our Savior Jesus Christ are so important to us. And of course, as we've been looking at that truth the last couple of weeks, hopefully each of us have been pushed a little bit and confronted by this truth of the doctrine of election. And clearly, if we approach it from a worldly perspective, it can cause us a great deal of angst. When we approach it from the truth of Scripture, it's humbling, it's liberating, it even compels us to a life of praise, and it informs our identity. Not who the world says we are by our careers, our income, our achievements, or our failures. Not even who we say we are by how we feel, by our pride, our self-esteem, or our shame, but who God says we are. And that's the blessing Paul explains as he opens this letter to the saints in Ephesus, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Last week, we used this graphic as a contrast between the worldly view of life with God and what the Bible's view tells us. The worldly view holds that God created things. Humans were part of his creation and they have beliefs. Part of their belief set involves the afterlife, and most have a desire for a good one, heaven. But our behavior is riddled with sin, and so we try to counter our sinful condition with good works. We're inclined to believe that if we have enough good behavior, God will choose to let us into heaven. 
But the Bible tells us that God chose the faithful in Christ before he created the foundation of the world. And God convicted his adopted children of their sin and called them to place their faith in Jesus. He forgives their sin by the blood of Christ shed on the cross. He then gives them the Holy Spirit who counsels, convicts, and comforts, making his adopted children more Christ-like each day and their behavior being obedient to him out of love until he one day calls them home into his presence in heaven for all eternity. So why is it so important for us to make this distinction between what you see up there on the right and what you see on the left? Because what we believe shapes our identity. And our identity, therefore, then impacts our behavior and the rest of our lives. So we've covered a ton of ground the past few weeks. If you missed any of these sermons, I encourage you to check them out online. This is kind of a a series where you want to keep up with all that we're studying. And of course, Brian read for you all of that you see on the screen up there. Last week, we covered the part in white, and this week, we're going to cover the part in orange. But if you notice up there in the part in white, there's a couple references that we see. Blessed us in Christ, and then chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And then Paul's going to go on now for the next three weeks, and he's basically going to define what it means to be in Him. This week, we're going to see in Him in redemption. Next week, it's in Him with regard to our inheritance. And then the following week, we're actually going to spend a little time looking at the Gospel of John, where Jesus speaks specifically to being in Him. And then we're going to come back for the third in Him that Paul talks about, which is in Him being sealed by the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with a brief overview of those two words, in Him. And we've covered some of this already in previous weeks. And my hope is that as you study Scripture throughout the week on your own, that you'll see this word in come up over and over again. It's such an important word. It's small, tiny little thing, I-N, but it packs a powerful punch. When you are in something, you are a part of it. You belong to it. So we belong to Jesus, God's adopted children. And as we learned, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's really the central tenet of the gospel message. It's what the good news is all about, that we're in Christ. Because the only answer to our sin is Jesus, being washed in His blood. There's just no other way to deal with sin. So being in Him means that we've responded to the Holy Spirit's conviction that we hate our sin as much as God does. We've repented, we've turned from our sin and placed our faith in Christ and in Him alone to save us from our sin. Being in Christ is what makes us holy and blameless before God. In Him means we're members of His body, His church. And it's an all or nothing thing. Either we're in Him his adopted children, or we're not. You can't be halfway in Him, which means we must also resist this urge we have to try to be a Christian, as if we're working at it somehow. No, we are simply Christians, saints who are faithful 
in Christ Jesus solely because in love, God adopted us. Or as Paul says, we're servants of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's our identity that God has given us. So you see, the only thing we bring to the salvation equation is our sin. That's it. Jesus takes care of the rest of it when we're in him. That's God's plan. When he adopted us as his children, it's his will. It's what he set forth from the beginning of time. So our adoption in Christ means we share in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. We are God's chosen, the elect. His adopted children are in him. And in him, we learn today, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So let's take these words in turn. The word redemption means deliverance by the payment of a ransom. It's a term that was often used with regard to liberating a slave or someone who's imprisoned. It's essentially paying for their freedom. Once purchased, the object of the redemption, the slave or the inmate, then belonged to the person who redeemed them. And that's our condition. We're all in a state of bondage, imprisonment, enslaved to our sin, and unable to free ourselves. So the statement in orange up there affirms that we can't redeem ourselves. We can only be redeemed through his blood. We couldn't even pay the ransom with our own blood, even if we wanted to, because we're sinful and it requires an unblemished lamb like Jesus. But if God chooses to redeem us, to free us from our sin, then there has to be a price paid or ransom for us. And as we saw last week, God does not ever let sin off the hook. And the price he paid is the blood shed by his one and only son. Last week, we spoke of two judges, one that's just, always gives the guilty punishment to people who are guilty, meaning they get what they deserve. And a second judge that's not only just, but also loving and gracious. So while some get what they deserve from the second judge, others that he chooses even before he hears their case are liberated, redeemed from their bondage, freed, forgiven for their murderous trespasses. The penalty, however, is still paid, but by the judge's son instead. And that's the picture of redemption that Paul paints for us here. And that's a term encompassing the totality of our salvation. Our red drop slide that we used back in the Sermon on the Mount, it helps us visualize the all-encompassing nature of redemption. That, white dark, that wide dark path up there that leads to eternal destruction, it represents our enslaved sinful condition. And in the white box below it, we essentially see the key components of our tombstone. There's a point in time in which we're born, a point in time in which we die. And then there's that dash in the middle that represents our life. And redemption involves a threefold process that you see above the dash. 
justified, sanctified, glorified. When God convicts us of our sin and we respond by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified in that moment, made right before God by that single red drop of Christ's blood that's used as ransom to purchase our forgiveness. We're born again into a new life in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, walks us down that well-lighted, narrow path, always pointing us to Jesus, convicting, counseling, and comforting us, making us more Christ-like each day until we reach the narrow gate, welcomed into the loving arms of our Savior, glorified, all sins forgiven forever. Justification means we have been saved. Sanctification means we are being saved. And glorification means we will be saved. Those in Christ are guaranteed all three phases. They are forever justified, being sanctified, and will for sure be glorified. That's redemption. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Justified, sanctified, glorified in Christ and redeemed by Christ's blood. So we are therefore bondservants to him. We belong to him. We are in him. How does it happen? Well, Paul tells us, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And as we've learned, grace is unmerited favor, meaning there's nothing that we do to deserve it. You recall last week, on your way out the door, we gave everybody a big cookie. And we told you, you didn't do anything the week before to deserve it. Because we wanted to demonstrate grace to you. Well, this week, we want to demonstrate what it's like to be in a church where there's no grace. So there'll be no cookie afterwards. <laughs> we'll see if we bring them back here in a week or two. Grace is unmerited. And this is perhaps the hardest part for us to grasp. Because the flesh in us always wants to earn it. And here's why. Because when we work to earn something, we have a sense of being worthy, of having merit. It makes us feel good about ourselves, and it builds up our self-esteem. The world tells us that's a really good thing, to have a high self-esteem based on your merits. Self-esteem is defined as how we value or perceive ourselves. But when our esteem is built on our merit, one of two things happen. Either because we're sinful, resting on our merit places us on pretty thin ice and we're apt to fall through because of our sinful condition. Or our sinful nature tends to twist our self-esteem into pride, ego, self-assurance, and self-righteousness, which then results in us trying to add our merit and our self-esteem into the redemption equation. In other words, we begin to believe our redemption is based on Christ's blood plus our merit that puffs up our self-esteem. And we can see this in ourselves whenever we sit in judgment on others, whenever we find ourselves pointing out the sins of our neighbors. And we lose sight of the fact that we remain in our sin too, plus We've now added self-righteousness 
to it all. But the truth about the redemption process is that there's no hierarchy in it at all. There can't be, because it's by grace. We're all fallen, each separated from God by our sin. The only thing we got is God's grace to redeem us. His unmerited favor that he extends to his adopted children by virtue of Christ's blood shed on the cross. Not by our merits, simply because in love God adopted us, redeemed us according to the riches of his grace. Do you see how insulting this is to God that we might think we're somehow worthy enough to earn his love? Grace isn't something to be earned. It's not something to be intellectualized or even felt. Rather, it's to be received with humility. And when we humbly accept it, we can't ever entertain the idea that somehow our merit will redeem us. What about serving as a deacon, though? Sure, that counts for something. Maybe taking meals to the sick or volunteering at the center or even preaching a sermon. Well, the minute we think we've done something worthy of God's acceptance, we must repent in humility. But wait, what about my self-esteem, my identity? Your esteem and identity are in Him and nothing else. And what a tremendous gift that is to us. All the pressure that the world puts on us about our merit and our self-esteem, it all just disappears because it's according to the riches of God's grace, His unmerited favor that Paul says God lavished upon us. Now, the word lavished means overflow in abundance, to make excellent, generous beyond measure. And here's perhaps a way for us to begin to fathom the riches of God's grace that He lavishes on us. The blue square up there represents grace, unmerited favor, free gift, nothing demanded from us and nothing received from us. Upon humbly accepting God's grace, we realize how much more there is. That's why Paul uses the word riches, and that white bar shows us some of these riches. As we experience more of it in blue, we realize there's even more than we initially thought. And with each new grace received, we realize how much God has to lavish on us to the point where we stand at that blue line at the bottom, in the middle, and we look back, and there's no beginning to His grace. And we look forward, and there's no end to the grace either. It's amazing because we see how unfathomable His grace is. We stand before God as a nobody, and Christ's blood makes us somebody. That's our identity, rich in Christ. So it's no wonder that Paul writes with such joy and thanksgiving from a place of such suffering, a Roman jail cell, because he was chosen by God despite all he had done to persecute Jesus' followers. Remember, he'd even presided over Stephen's stoning. You see, there's absolutely nothing that can separate God's adopted children from the love of Christ. The prodigal son, he didn't get that either at first. 
After abandoning his family and squandering his inheritance, he sheepishly returns home to work as a servant. But his father, he saw it differently. He celebrated his return with a huge party. He welcomed him home as his son. You see, it doesn't matter what you've done. God is able to save, to heal, to deliver, to restore anything he wants to. But do you get now how there can be no sense of our merit or our self-righteousness in any of it? The only response to God's grace is humility, thanksgiving, and praise, as we learned last week. And part of this lavished grace is the fact that God makes it known to us that we are His adopted children. The knowledge and assurance that God loves us, chose us, and redeems us, despite our sinful depravity. How do we see that? Well, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. Let's start with this word, mystery. There are 11 specific mysteries mentioned in the New Testament, and this is one of them. The word mystery in this context doesn't mean something that's incomprehensible to the human mind. Rather, it's something that's not discoverable by the unaided human mind. That's a critical distinction. In other words, it's a truth that's out of reach of the human mind, heart, and soul until God reveals it. It's a revelation from God. God is the one who makes it known to us. It says it specifically here in the text. It's not by man's agency. And he makes it known to us through wisdom and insight to carefully chosen words. In the original Greek language, wisdom is understanding through intellect, while insight is understanding through the knowledge and holy love of the will of God. In other words, it involves affection. So this isn't human wisdom and insight, it's wisdom and insight that God reveals to His adopted children, to the totality of our conscious being, or the space of our comprehensible awareness, our intellect, and our affections. Meaning it comes to us by God's revelation and God generates within us this irresistible belief in this truth. And that's why not all those who read Scripture or go to church grasp this truth of the mystery of His will, because God hasn't revealed it to them. Many intellectually and emotionally gifted people have rejected this truth. If you try to grasp all we've been discussing the past few weeks from a worldly perspective, you just can't get there. But that is exactly why we can't form our belief set or our identity based on worldly or human wisdom. The only way we can grasp the mystery of His will is if God grants us the gift of understanding by His Holy Spirit. So if you find yourself struggling with this, the first and very best thing you can do is open your Bible. Start reading it. It contains God's truth. And then second, ask, seek, and knock that the Holy Spirit would reveal His truth to you. We learn in the Sermon on the Mount, when we ask, seek, and knock, He will do it. If our friends and our family struggle with it, don't judge them. 
And certainly don't ever lose hope. And Paul's going to tell us why next. Because all of this is according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, when our loved ones struggle in their faith, we must pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal God's truth to them. We're called to share this truth from Scripture, both in our words, but perhaps more importantly, in our actions. And hopefully you'll remember back in the fall, when we were focused on the Sermon on the Mount, and we brought out this green rag. It was basically to remind ourselves to not sit in judgment on other people when they're struggling with their sin or God's truth. Instead, we should look at our brother back there and say, hey, brother, I see you got a smudge on your face. I got one too. I've had one for years. I got to work at it every single day. I got this rag. I found it to be helpful. I got an extra one. You're welcome to it if you'd like. I'll pray for you. I'll be here for you. I know exactly what you're going through. Do you see how that approach changes everything? No censorious judgment, responding instead with humble encouragement. Then we must also allow time for God's grace to do its work according to His purpose and God's timing, not ours. You see, God operates outside of this major constraint of time that we all face as humans. God is the one who set time in motion and so even it obeys him. And as we see here, according to God's purpose, he set forth a plan that spans the fullness of time. God was not surprised by Adam's sin, and he's not surprised by ours either. And so God has had a plan in place since before the beginning of time to unite, to reconcile all things in Christ. This is the grand purpose behind all that has gone on in life throughout the history of the world. We're actually going to start here next week as we look at our inheritance in Him. But there's one more thing I think it's really important for us to note, that this is God's plan. It's not ours. And He hasn't revealed the list of His elect to us. Now, we can know with 100% certainty about ourselves whether we are among His adopted children. We're going to see that much more clearly over the next couple of sermons. But in today's text, we see that God reveals the mystery of it as part of God convicting us of our sin and calling us to belief in His Son. And so we know in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, whether or not we've placed our faith in Christ and nothing more. And that's also why we can't know for certain about someone else, because it's between God and each person. We can't go by actions, we can't go by words, can't go by professions of faith, although they're all vitally important. We're simply not in a position to determine who is and who is not among the elect. Only God knows that. Our role is simply to respond in obedience to God's calling and to serve Him by sharing the truth with everyone. In other words, just assume everyone is potentially among God's adopted children. The person sitting next to you in your pew, 
your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, everyone God has placed in your path. Even that guy that keeps calling you all week long, wanting you to update the warranty on your car. <laughs> no one is out of reach of God. It's never too late. That's the role of his church, his body. It's part of the plan from the beginning of time. God uses his church to reach the lost. So if you're among those who've placed your faith in Jesus, contend for him with all you've got. Respond to your commission. Go to the tri-state region and beyond, making fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. After all, that's why we're here. Number three up there, it's part of our identity. It's what we've been chosen to do by God. Do you see how each week, as we study this letter, God provides wisdom and insight that shapes our identity in Christ. Ask, seek, and knock for the Holy Spirit to help you answer these questions as you find your identity in Christ. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you a spirit of gratitude, amazed at the riches of your grace that you've lavished on us, that you would redeem us in Christ as part of the plan you've had in place before the foundation of the world. And so we humble ourselves in your presence for the praise of your glorious grace. Father, our sin is ever before us, reminding us of our need for a Savior. You are a God, and we're your people. So you sent your Son to be our Savior, dying on the cross for our sins, establishing this new covenant that we all live under. Lord, we're not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only, and our souls shall be healed. Amen. So for our response time today, we're going to gather at the foot of the cross. We're reminded that there's never been the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Under the new covenant, Christ's blood serves as the means to our forgiveness. Before the Lord went to the cross, where his blood was shed for us, he had a meal with his disciples, instituting communion between God and man for all time. Communion is for those who place their faith in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Paul instructs us to examine ourselves before we receive the elements. So let's take a few moments in the quiet of our hearts to humbly confess our sin, accept Christ's forgiveness, and recommit ourselves in humble obedience to His service. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we are not worthy that you should come under our roof, but speak the word only and our souls shall be healed. Amen.